you want to um well hold on a second let him roll smoke Oh yeah, How, what's this going to pick up? I'm going to try not to slurp. No, no, we want the slurp. Yeah, we yeah, we want everything. Nature's bliss. You know? We want this sound. Look, listen. Well, we'll wait for it then. Some of these. Maybe. Yeah, we need some of those. Yeah, I got to get a little bit. One of, one of the uh, authors I'm working with. Every time I have a meeting with him, he's like, "I just love the Zippo in the background." Oh, that's nice. Is that a Zippo? Yeah, classic design. Nice. Let's see here. So I've got, yeah. Vanessa, did you write anything down or are you good? Uh, I meant to. I That's didn't. Right. I got some in my mind. Let me tell you what I got. Taylor, remind me one last time what the name of your press is, actually. Uh, Cooper and Posey. Cooper and Posey. I thought it was Taylor and Posey. Yeah. That's your last name. Yeah, that, that would be me. You and you. It started as Taylor Posey, publisher, and then uh, my co-publisher's wife, we got married, and she, she got, was very upset. She said, Taylor's using you. You got you to gotta put your name on it. And uh, so I did, which I I love because the idea that like the worst thing I could do is exploit an editor for his talent. This is true. If that's the worst thing that could be said about me, that's that's marvelous. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think I got everything I need. I have cigarettes, port, good coffee, comfort. I'm very comfortable. In my time. Vanessa, are you gonna be comfortable down there? Or you want to sit uh, up no, here? No, I'm great. I'm great. I'm Sitting all Indian style. Take a little fire for you in a second. Native American smokes. Yeah. Very nice. All right. Let's see. Oh, yeah. I didn't even check. Sounds good. Let me mm-hmm. hear you do it. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yada, yada. Dostoevsky. And so on. The goat. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, yeah. I prefer Turgenev. Do you? Do. We'll talk about that, too. So, American Sublime, episode 15. We are here in the depths of the heights of Appalachia. <laughs> the depths. The depths. We're down in the valley, sir. That's right. No, uh, Swananoa. Swananoa. Now, we're with Taylor Posey. Posey. Of Cooper and Posey Press. Yeah, Cooper and Posey Publishers. Publishers. Yeah. Now, you're you're from Asheville. I am, yeah. Um, this is my first time out in Swannanoa. How long have you lived out here? Uh, I haven't been in Swannanoa for very long. Uh, it's in fact it's mostly foreign to me. I grew up in uh, Fairview in South Asheville. Uh, I was in Hendersonville for a moment, but my family on my mother's side has been from Asheville a few generations, like 100, 150 years. Oh, okay, maybe. so. So you, your your family's been here long enough to know that the city's changed. Oh yeah, there was a, there was a long spell where it was uh, George Vanderbilt and his people, and then uh, the poor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That was Asheville uh, for a long time, and uh, it was great great grandfather. I think was a ranger on the Biltmore estate. My grandmother's born on the estate. Oh no, wow, wow. Uh, the Frith House on the estate, but down where. Long Shoals is, uh, so it used to be known as Butler Town. That's my middle name, Butler. And uh, that's where they lived for a while, where Bill, where Biltmore Park now is. So your initials used to be Vanderbilt. are JBP. TBP. TBP. Yeah, that's right. 
Um, like JBB, that's what I meant to say. Is that Jordan Peterson? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no. uh, yeah. I'm, I'm only mildly Petersonian. <laughs> yeah, very mild. People are people are running just off that the traditional part. Yeah, no, he's been he's been uh, he's been memeing himself into existence again. Mm-hmm. No, out of existence. Well, he's been yeah. Uh, well, but he's becoming a meme existence entirely. Yeah, I think I think if uh, people cared for Homer, what. Peterson cares for Jung. I think we'd be fine. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah, that's very good. So do you have so you have history at the Biltmore? Uh, my yeah, my 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 family does. It's, like I said, great. I think it's great. Great great grandfather. I don't think it's three greats. I'll have to remember, but as I say, he was a ranger on the estate back wow. in the days of uh, you know, two Two six shooters and a horse, and you're in riding pants all the time. Wow, that yeah. should be enough to get you access to the grounds. Yeah, you'd think so, but it's not. As far as I know, it's not even run. It's run by descendants of the Vanderbilts, the Pickerings, I think. Do you visit? Do you visit very often? Oh no, no, I don't have any associate. I mean, he was a laborer for the estate. Mm-hmm. Had nothing to do with George Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt and his shenanigans. But it seems as if your aesthetic appreciations. I like it. I mean, I think I think the estate is a strange um, enterprise that actually worked. Mm -hmm. I mean, the English manor with the chateau facade and the damn Blue Ridge Mountains. I think somehow it's worked perfectly. Um, But uh, my my only real opinion on the estate is that the winery was a horrible idea. I don't know if you know they. I've had some of their wines. And they're not very. Good. Their best wine isn't made by them, uh, really. But their labels on it. Yeah, I, I worked there for a little while, but they used to have a dairy, and they used to have excellent dairy cows. Mm-hmm. Where TGI Fridays is now, uh, that was the down dairy. in the village. Yeah, in Billmore Village, far more charming. TGI Fridays is about uh, has the most cheapening effect I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on, on the on the the Biltmore tradition. It's uh, funny because the entrance to the whole estate is all chains, and chains, and McDonald's across it. But I will say that they've they've actually uh, made it so that the um, they've tried a pretty the chains the are. It's a nice McDonald's. To be fair, yeah, it is within the architectural nice tradition of the area. So, right. you know, it's not a complete eyesore at, yeah. the, at the entrance to Biltmore. Estates. It's funny, if you go up to New England, a lot of the, the wealthier towns in Massachusetts, or even in Vermont, where they're really keen on keeping the corporate chains out. But in Massachusetts, the, the fancy towns will have Dunkin' Donuts still. But they'll have, like, they'll have gold lettering. Go this Dunkin' Donuts is pretty. <laughs> it's still the same stuff. Yeah, you know, they've they've understood the form, but not the substance. True. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, yes, yes, yes. Well, cool. So you moved out to Swannanoa. When was that? Oh, uh, pretty pretty recently. Last couple of years, I haven't been here for long. I mean, I I got this house to like I say uh, hold. Irving Book Company inventory. Right. That's where I was going to go next. Was yeah. curious about Irving Book Co's. That's how I learned about you. Was uh, through our mutual friend, Pharaoh. Ramsey. Oh, What's right. that? I was <laughs> called Pharaoh. Pharaoh. <laughs> Pharaoh Ramsey. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was in with the Captain's Bookshelf, which was before it closed, the oldest uh, bookstore in Asheville. And, the, and easily the best. And um, so I was there for a while, as a, I was out, hired as a cataloger in 2013. 
and then became more of a bookseller, so to speak. And I avoided the trade for a long time because booksellers don't read. They don't have time to read. Um, That's interesting. I also don't like the idea of... It's uh, depressing. Besides the fact that I'm not... I've, I have no good temperament for... I'm not a good merchant, naturally. <laughs> uh, but aside from that, it's like... Um, there's a... Uh, it seems... To me, the longer you're in the trade, the, lo- the more likely you are to associate uh, the retail price with the uh, excellence of the pros, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and oftentimes those things correspond, like wine. You know, you, oftentimes a $500 bottle of wine is really good. Um, well, I noticed you have a tawny port here. Do you have a preference for tawny over ruby? or? Uh, no, actually. It's a, at these days, the cheapest port. Trader Joe's is pretty good, cheap port. No, it's, this is a good port. It's palatable. This is yeah. nice. I like it. I like that during I like uh, Amaro and uh, port during the winter. But so I resisted going into the trade. Um, I learned a lot. It was a good education being in the book trade. But uh, when we, Captain's Bookshelf, began to liquidate, there was a lot of good stock that had been handpicked for almost 50 years that I had access to. So I decided I'd better be an opportunist about it. And then I thought, little by little, well, like, uh, it's hard to come by honest work. Uh, it's good to avoid being a wage slave. So if I could make money buying and selling used mirror books, then why not? But the idea was always uh, to work as a bookseller full-time and to publish part-time with the hope that someday... I could transition into publishing full-time. That's the dream. Selling books part-time. Because then it's yours. That's truly yours, right? That's, that's, that's right. Idea. Did you always want to do uh, the book trade? Or yeah. what did you want to do before no. that? No, I was, uh, I was trained in classics. I wanted to be a professor. I think I still would like to. I never really wrote it off. But You the, look like one. <laughs> <laughs> well, the universities failed maybe 20 or 30 years ago. And now they're just like rotting courses. Tell me more about that, will you? <laughs> no. Come on now. I'm probably getting proud. Uh, what, is it, what do you mean by failed, sir? <laughs> uh, yeah, lots of ways to put that. Well, I think the humanities have taken the biggest hits. But it's now it's obvious. It's, it's most pronounced in the humanities yeah. because that should be the place you'd expect at the least ulterior motives. Like, like you're, uh, you're not uninterested in poverty if you're going into the humanities. But the game, the game now is something like um, uh, choose, you know, pick like the, the least read, like most third, fourth rate Roman author and uh, do some interdisciplinary fiddling around and maybe take something like gaze theory from film studies and mm-hmm. apply it to a third rate. Who do you, th- uh, who do you think poet. is the least read? Classic. The, the least read? Yeah. Um, well, in the universities, it's, it's the, those in the canon that are the least read. Uh, yeah. Uh, but generally, uh, Pindar and Solon, Solon's mm. got a very small corpus, uh, but those two are, I, I think, the most out of fashion and the least read. I mean, I haven't, I haven't read Solon. I just know the laws. Yeah. Uh, He's got some ethics, too. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, very small corpus. And Pindar's is very difficult. One of the greatest poets that's ever lived, but very difficult. And so difficult they'll, they'll apply gaze theory to Solon and Pindar? Well, not oh, Solon yeah. and Pindar because they're out of fashion, you see. Okay, so who's in fashion? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, well, you know, you you would do it to Shakespeare, even. 
Yeah, I um, mean that's that's a thick. But now, thickly. But, you, but you've got to go one step further because uh, you've. <laughs> what shall I say? It. Yeah. It helps if you're doing this. Um, the ideal probably is uh, is doing this as a as a black trans scholar. You have to read Sappho. That's the thing to do with gaze theory. Sappho helps. Yeah. <laughs> Sappho helps uh, as long as you don't do anything too philological. You need too classical lesbian literature mm-hmm. with gay theory. Well, well, kind of what they like now isn't uh, like the great. Is, the is idea gay the, theory queer theory is that what you're getting? No, it's the. Who, who, who made that up, the gays theory? Is that like Simone de Beauvoir or something? Well, the best... I think it comes from film studies programs. Okay. The idea of uh, in, in an image on the screen, you've got uh, one of the actors looking into the camera. And mm. what, what, uh, what on earth does that mean? And what effect does it have artistically, let's say? Um, but no, see, we, we're not really interested anymore in... Um, in excellent writing, we're interested in. Um, uh, I mean, just like in politics today, the the, the disenfranchised or the or the minority. So, uh, like, what what are what are Roman prostitutes paying for grain? Like, uh, that's that's sort of a question. <laughs> like, the Roman prostitutes aren't writing very much, right? Uh, or at least we don't have many extant writings from them. Yeah, this is the opposite of of great man history. Right, great so man reading. It's like, how can we find the most proletarian reading of this ancient work? Yeah, you think you think in some humility. Well, you're lucky because we only have the very best of the very best writers. We don't have to sort through anything anymore. So now we're going out of our way to ignore uh, yeah, Homer and Virgil. Well, what that's done is it's created a whole class of or, or a whole class of uh, the expert or the bureaucratic class of the humanities who have no knowledge of. You can get a PhD in English now and not have read Milton. Oh, it's very tedious. Know? Yeah, and that's uh, I find that to be sort of the most perverse element of it yeah. is that you can how can you how can you acquire that PhD? You know, the ultimate sort of emblematic yeah. plaque of your of your field of study without really having studied it <laughs> <laughs> right you know well, only an like, academic could justify it's a this. lot of work too it's a lot of there's no doubt that to get a phd is a lot of work no matter how you get it so it's a lot of uh, work reading and studying what exactly yeah is it yeah. is it real work or not now i suppose is the difference i've got i still have a few friends in in phd programs and one of the first things was reported to me about uh, Chicago is all these, these students do a lot of complaining about work. He says, I haven't seen any of them actually do work. <laughs> really? <laughs> and of course, a lot of these places, the requirements have dropped out, the language requirements specifically. I mean, it wasn't that long ago where if your um, field was, um, say, archaeology, well, your Greek or your Latin or both had to be very good. Uh, now you hardly need the languages anymore, even in poetry. Um, and I think the last notable thing that's happened in, in the discipline is in, I think at Princeton the, a year or two ago yes. the language required just got they dropped it. now are yeah, you proficient with Greek, right and, Greek or Latin uh, Greek and Latin yeah and then oh. a, a smattering of well if you're a classist you've got to have Greek and Latin that's no matter right. what you're doing and then you also have to have German um, because they were at the they were the best classist of the 19th century so, so much of what we've got what we've inherited is at the behest of the German philologist. Um, and then 
uh, and then French, and and then Italian, and in, in that order, Italian and Spanish probably would be just about on par. So you've got to have the modern languages mainly for reading knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got a smattering of most of those. <laughs> you know, Gr- Grimm's Law and all that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm familiar. <coughs> Uh, but mainly, yeah, mainly the Greek and Latin. So that's how I was trained. I, I would still describe myself as a class I still read. Yeah. Um, and I haven't even entirely written it off. But the university, uh, at this point, I could I could read more and learn more not uh, as part of the university. The trouble is you can't teach. Right. So if you want to teach, you've, you've still got to play the game. You have to, well, or start a YouTube channel or something like that, or a podcast. Right. Because- but, th- but then everything's flattened. Uh, I mean, only you, you know, only you can get on YouTube and say who actually has talent from the look because there's no, you know, accreditation or distinction. Really, the the era we live in, this is the trouble with not not seeing the best or the or what would be considered great art if it's out there hovering to the surface because the surface is claimed. So then it leaves you to. I would think you you would want to you want to print works you want to work with uh, Cooper and Posey that was the name of your publishing right right you want to work with that to probably continue a tradition yeah so because I, because the tradition is subjugated it's suppressed yeah I have lots of uh, lots of reasons for carrying on with a profitless publishing house well, one of them certainly is integrity I would think is working with authors and, and illustrators especially university press authors there there are still a lot of good people in something like enclaves in certain universities that their own presses won't publish because it's not in vogue. Mm-hmm. Nobody, it's like pub- publishers rarely, I mean, even even uh, earlier in the days of commercial publishing, rarely asked the question. The f- their first question isn't, is this prose good or is this verse radiant? It's, uh, will it sell, you know? Right. right. Um, and so I don't care at all about that. I mean, uh, I joke that... A. Milne is one of those authors pigeonholed for, in this case, uh, Winnie the Pooh, although he wrote several very good things. He was originally a punch humorist, but uh, he was frustrated, would often say, when asked, what do you write? A lot of people expect to hear, like, novels or poetry. He was, whatever I damn well please. So that's also the criterion for the publishing house. Yeah, as in he, he wrote for Punch magazine? Is that what you Yeah, said? originally. Okay. That's, ah. that's how he, I think, began his career. One of the, one of the, Forthcoming titles is uh, the Red House Mystery, mm. which is a mystery novel he wrote. He's dissatisfied with the with the rules of the game. Uh, is that uh, now in public domain? So you can it is yeah nice. that one's easy. I don't have to fool with copyright. Right. So um, you just reset it. Well, yeah, a little more than than that. Uh, that is important. There are a lot of these what you would call reprint publishers. Uh, yeah, they're all over Amazon. Yeah, well, that's even worse because that's uh, that's print on demand. So they don't do, they don't actually expend any labor on anything. <laughs> the whole thing is automated. I mean, right. the selection of the Google scan. I think it's com- completely unethical. But the better ones, they're still lazy. But the better ones will, yeah, they might go so far as to reset the text. Uh, but we do the in- the entire thing. So w- the way I describe it is, we don't do reprints. We do. Um, if the work's already appeared in publication, we would describe it as a new edition. Mm. So, for example, uh, when we look at the Red House Mystery, this is a lot of what I did uh, if, if I was re- recording music that's been played before. I'd say, well, first, 
has the best version been done? Mm-hmm. Is, is there a reason to do a better version? Because you don't want to just record another version. Yes. And with the printed word, it's even more important because you don't want to put ink on a page and waste waste paper and good black ink if if you're just doing another thing. So uh, the idea with Red House, uh, this happens to be its 100-year anniversary. That was, oh, that was wow. helpful. first appeared in 1922. Of course, we're going to get out next year, which is a little bit uh, <laughs> pain. But at any rate, we look at Red House Mystery, um, and we say, is there an edition of this that's any good at all? Like if I wanted to go out and buy a copy for yes, myself, yes. Um, can I? And we say, no, there's no editions in print that are any good. And we say, what about if you're buying a used and rare book, which is why Irving Book Company is helpful, because I can identify every edition that's been printed. And if the answer is still no, we could actually do better, then it's a good candidate okay. to make a new edition of. So what we, as, as soon as we can say that, um, yeah, we do some resetting. So I'll, you know, one or two week bender trying to figure out what the most appropriate type is right. for the book. Is one of our principles is that the form has got to reflect the content in every, so what, that's what, an in every aspect. I love that. So what kind yeah. of types are you using for these things? Yeah, so um, the uh, with the Frost, well, with Red House, with Frostbook, with what? Does it ah, with our Red House. So, so generally with types, uh, you've got a great and a very rich history of typography, but uh, setting it digitally which of those types, the question is, which of those types have been digitally revived well? Mm. And so um, to get into the weeds a little bit, one idea you've got is uh, if you're going to do a good digital revival, when they they cut these types, when they punch cut these types originally, uh, 10 point, 12 point, those are all different um, sizes. It's the same face in the same family, but they cut them differently. If you look at them, uh, at an F at 24 point and an F at 8 point, if you just blow up the 8 point to 24 point, it's not the same. Right. Because it, uh, there's a little bit of, always a little bit of that. Uh, it needs to be a little bit thicker if it's smaller. Yeah, right. And and uh, and because you can see more in the larger types, you've got to make more delicate serifs, for yes, example. Yes, And so a lot, of what, a lot of what goes on in book design is that, is that idea of, um, of, uh, the David with his little, very large hand mm. because you're looking at it from the bottom so everything shakes out. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of that idea runs through principles of book design, runs through typography. And so if you're making good digital revival, uh, you're not just making one f- one font, you're making, um, if you're reviving Times New Roman uh, for the screen, you want it to be... Uh, you want a display size, so like 14 points plus, and then you want a book size, and you want a caption size. Caption size would be like 8 or 10 points and less. Um, and so it's a much... Those are the sort of types that can be used for books. I mean, we take it for granted that there, there are certain kinds of paper and certain types that are appropriate for books. Times New Roman, which is always... That's the mandate for like all schools. It's a stupid mandate because that's, that's a newspaper type. Ooh. Um, you should never use it uh, for for books. I mean, it was created for e- economy on a newsprint, a uh, page of newsprint. Um, so it's not playing to its strengths if it's on, I'd say, a 6 by 9 uh, or, a, or a spread of 12 by 9 uh, So I'm, we're restricted to not very many types. You also have some licensing issues, right, with type as well? That's actually easier. See, t- 
type type and uh, uh, typography and printing, uh, practically it's not used very often for books anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like blogs and branding, right? Magazines, right? Like one of the one of the consequences of um, of the pandemic was a severe consolidation of. Uh, of paper catalogs, and there aren't that many uh, paper mills in the United States. So uh, when they consolidated, of course, they're cutting out the first to go or the, what they would think of as specialty papers. And so I'm over here thinking, well, books are very common, so those are the last things to go, but it's not true. So you see a lot of the basic principle of book design is never print on white paper. Uh, it's, an, it's an eyesore. You can't read for very long. It's also ugly. You, what you're doing is you're imitating the handmade papers, which always have the kind of vellum uh, ivory look or the screen <clears throat> right yeah yeah so you want you want warm whites most book papers uh, that are described as white are actually very warm and so you might have yeah cream. you can see that it's it's a cream yeah. tint that's the whitest i would ever use that paper on the frost but you can book. still see it is not not a sharp white yeah, it's not it's, printer paper yeah it's not pure white you never that's, use pure white that's more of a that's a creamier color that's yeah. got a bit of a butter in it right <clears throat> and so the point is uh, I look at the catalogs available because for the Red House Mystery, this is a book that's inaugurating uh, our mystery series. And so we need a paper that we can, you know, within reason rely on to be available for some years and, and to come. And who are you using to run these, the, to print these? Who, what, what, which... Is that the, the the press out of Dalton, Mass? Well, this I'm well, I'm just describing paper mills sourcing. But the I mean, paper. so do you? How does that go work for you? Do you where do you source the paper to go uh, to get to press? Yeah, so I mean, it's uh, or do a lot of these usually, presses give you options? Yeah, usually the the because the the printers are working with uh, with distributors or the mills themselves they get the best deals and you don't have to order it yeah that would be you don't do that you don't fool with that but at the same time you've got to make sure that the papers are available <coughs> right because I've already I mean it hasn't been that long we only have two titles both of the titles and three other titles I've designed uh, I then spec it and send the specs to to uh, printers for bids and the paper's not even available or it's extremely expensive mm. like prohibitively expensive and so with these uh, with these paper catalogs, the, there's so many warm whites that look very ordinary that have just disappeared. And most of the catalog is made up of pure whites. Why? Because people aren't making so many books; they're making magazines. Um, warm whites, Manassas people. <laughs> the warm whites. <laughs> yeah. If you're printing, if you're printing graphics, like you want uh, really great tonality or really deep blacks, you're going to print on pure white. Uh, you're not going to print because you have to comp. If you're printing on warm white in this book, for example, the introduction of Robert Frost, the frontispiece here, which is this black and white image, mm-hmm. mm. the frontispiece portrait of Carl Maurer, that uh, the the printer and pre press or the designer has to compensate for this warm tone because it's going to muddy up the picture. Mm. It's going to lose a lot of the, the uh, pictorial quality. highlights and yeah, that makes sense. So I don't remember what question I was answering. It's well, about typography. It was, he, had, he had asked it about the uh, yeah. From, started with typography, but yeah. Then. So that, I, to to simplify it, these uh, these like meditative benders that I go into this vision quest for the perfect type forever book. It's like uh, out of the, so my point initially was you only although there's uh, numerous excellent types, uh, physical types. Uh, we only have access to the good revivals. There's lots of bad revivals. 
of uh, good types. Garamond, for example, which comes stock on uh, Microsoft computers, it's uh-huh. not the real Garamond. Uh, it's like a, sh- a, sh- a shad. It's like a pale imitation. Of How do you get the real Garamond? This is something I've been wondering because I use that font. Yeah, I, so I press Adobe, the digital well. Adobe's digital type foundry did a digital revival of Garamond called Adobe Garamond Pro. Mm. Okay, uh, and that's what we used here, and that's a that's a really excellent revival. So, what program did you use? To, did you use like a frame maker program? Oh, to set. The, just design the books? Yeah. Oh, Adobe or just InDesign. Adobe PDF or viewer? Or? No, InDesign. Oh, does okay. Adobe InDesign, yeah. Uh, that's it's a it it's a pretty good program. There's only it only has one problem that I've seen so far, and otherwise it does everything. Which is what? Um, it has uh, if you're doing footnotes, there's some you know sophisticated automation, um, so you can keep. I mean, the idea is to have the footnotes referencing things actually on the page. Right. And so it'll, if the page goes over, it'll cook, kick footnotes over and keep everything uh, in sync. And, uh, but you can't do two-column footnotes. Uh, so there was a, one title I was working on. Actually, the, we're doing um, the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. That, too, is another anniversary. In fact, 50-year 50, 50 anniversary of Roe v. Wade is also... What were you doing this for? Uh, the publishing house. This is one of the fourth. This is the other fourth. The two two oh, titles wow. that are most you're, imminent are. You're saying uh, you're printing the opinions? Yeah, the opinion itself. Oh, wow. Wow. The Dobbs opinion. Because it, if you want to read it right now, you're reading a digital slip opinion. That's no way to read anything. The idea is this is this is supposedly you know the, one of the most important, influential, impactful right. opinions for the American I, people. Are you going to print it? There's no. <laughs> are you going to print it like that? Like, like the the seven poems that you did. It's going to be something. No, we're going to print it uh, as it is now. Um, say uh, a paperback, uh, ten by twelve. Some it's like ten so, by twelve inch, okay. large format. So less pale. That's a bit of more of like a pamphlet. Yeah, that's saddle this is stitched. where this this opinion. If you were to publish the opinion as a regular octavo, like six by nine inch book, it's four hundred pages. It's a huge. It would cost you a lot of money. It's a huge opinion. Yeah. So we're trying to. I mean, one of the ways to drive cost down is to decrease pagination, and so to, one of the ways I want to do that and keep it beautiful is uh, you have the main text, and then the thing is overburdened with footnotes. So you want them in two columns, and the Adobe InDesign can't do this. <laughs> no. I have to do it manually, which is a nightmare. Uh, so that's going to take a lot. I, of work. I was thumbing through a collection of uh, Antonin Scalia's opinions this morning. His opinions are enormous. Actually, yeah, and it's about it's, I think it's a 600-page book. Yeah. Um, There's no sympathy for the reader. The, yeah, the, the <laughs> right? type is actually quite large, which I was surprised by. It's three It's three words per page, so 600 yeah. pages. Well, they've got, the court The court reporters have, have standards. They're very picky. I mean, the, the, the blue book, which is the uh, the legal style guide, the legal version of it, say MLA or Chicago Turabian or whatever, they're, they're far pickier than than even the most obnoxious current current editions of of MLA. And then when they publish them, I mean everything down to the the trim size of the page is prescribed. Uh, and so what I don't like, one of the reasons why we're publishing the opinion is because if you want to read it even after it's published, you're only going to be able to read it in court reporters, which are Ooh. those really ugly law mm-hmm, books and mm-hmm. law libraries. And again, if if this actually has anything to do with uh, like every man, then the every man should be able to read it outside of this uh, pigeonholed format. Ooh. 
So how are you, th- what, what is your thought process for bringing together a, a Dobbs opinion and on the one hand and then printing frost oh yeah you know how how what is your how, how do process i process for we publish whatever yeah, we, we do whatever please. the hell we want hey, well that does go back to what he said right about what, what you said about yeah what you want so it, might as well this is one of the trickiest positions from the beginning that we found ourselves in that um the and this is by the way what makes jordan peterson so good is that he's packaged for consumers um and lots of publishers. more now than ever. More now, than ever. <laughs> but yeah, he, he want you want him to go further in, in so many inquiries, and he he's just wearing won't. multicolored suits now. You know, <laughs> right. he, he's really trying to vibe on that uh, Joker. He's getting that Daily Wire money now, folks. Yeah, uh-huh. it's, <laughs> it's so no, yeah, it's tailoring. You're right. You have so you're what you're saying is, rings true. I think. Yeah, well, it's you want to be able to say. Uh, somebody asks, what sort of books do you publish? You want to be able to say, we publish mystery novels. Um, or we publish poetry and translation. That's very convenient. It's convenient for the consumer. It's convenient for the publisher. It's con- convenient for the marketing strategist and so on. Uh, but one of the troubles we faced from the beginning, as I say, is that uh, we have no interest in selling to consumers. So we have no interest in oh. consumerism at all. That undermines the very uh, mission of the publishing house. We want instead uh, to have thoughtful human beings buying and reading these books. Mm-hmm. And so that's the way we make them. We don't make them uh, disposable. Even the, I mean, this, our second title is a pamphlet. It's saddle-stitched, which sounds fancy, but that just means staple-bound. Uh, but still, the binding is secure, uh, and the paper's uh, very nice. Um, and so it's not, even though it uh, appears to be somewhat ephemeral, it's not designed as a, a disposable, uh, g- glossy paperback. They, they like to use the cut cost. They use this binding method called perfect binding, which is very misleading. All it really means is that the text block is chopped and glued. Yeah. And those pages, I'm sure you felt you'll have the book for two weeks and then just pull it. Start to flat. Pull well, the leaf right out. I, I, I print books as well, not, not like this. I mean, I do it more to because I understand who my consumer is because um, to a degree you have to care somewhat but when I print I do perfect bound books uh, and you can you can make them about as nice as you can make something cheap you know <laughs> right. so you get the perfect bound well that's what paperback really is it's, it's just, funny how they they use that term perfect for, for the shitty binding well it's perfect bound <laughs> well, yeah do you know why I can tell you why no, tell well, us why I have but um but you know the company I use though, and you can still select decent paper. You can use good, but see, if you, you there's still, no reason to use good paper with a perfect binding. It's like uh, there's a there's a what's the expression? It's gilding the lily. Pig on a lips, uh, lipstick on a pig. Yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah, I think yeah. that's even better for the apple for the Appalachian yeah, yeah. Uh, idiom. <laughs> yeah, it, is, it really is. There's no reason to do it. it doesn't make any sense. Um, but. Uh, yeah, so that's one one thing I can say. Well, the hope is that the more titles we put out, a catalog is created that will clarify or def- define what sort of books we publish. So you say, well, just look at the catalog. That's what sort of books we publish. So you're exploring right now. I know. I wouldn't even say that because I can see. I can see the common denominator among these books. It looks random, but I, I'm claiming that it looks random because 
these marketing packages that the well, consumers... haven't published that, enough yet. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. We haven't published enough yet. We'll see the lineage. But you'll we'll see. see. You'll all see. You'll see the yeah, theme yeah. emerge. Yeah. Right. But one thing time. I can say about everything is that we, we abide by um, the Vitruvian... Oh, it's the Vitruvian triad. So uh, book design, bookmaking is, is in origin architectural. Mm. Um, Vitruvius being the great architect. Mm-hmm. And so the Vitruvian triad is what? Utilitas, firmitas, venustas. And so that is, uh, firmitas is like um, solid, sturdy, so non-disposable. Um, th- this is by th- these are the criteria for any excellent building and any excellent book, therefore. Um, uh, venustas is beautiful, uh, comely, charming. And um, what's the other one? Utilitas from uh, utilitas. Uh, you, you can hear utility, useful, mm-hmm. uh, helpful. So we make books that are uh, charming, helpful, and solid. You say, mm. and so both in form and content. Yes, it's to us are inseparable. Uh, and so Dobbs, you know, I could answer answer the what's what's the uh, the chief cause or the uh, main causes for any number of these books. Dobbs was. Simply, it's as I say, it's supposed to be a very impactful opinion, and yet I can still, to this day, count on one hand the number of people who have read it. <laughs> so, I haven't read it. I haven't read it either. <laughs> right. right. But maybe I will. will. What, what will the I'll read it when you publish it. How about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's I'll it. wait, because I don't want to read it online. Good. These, these yeah. things... You shouldn't like, have to. Also, reading the PDF... Come on, am I going to read a 250-page, 400-page PDF on my computer? No. Don't do it. Well, you and can print it. It's also bad for your eyes. And yeah. I've been thinking about this a lot because I love to read. But And my eyesight is great right now. I don't have glasses. But I have already... I've actually thought this way for a number of years, that I need to be reading the big books while I have the energy oh, yeah. and the time and while my eyesight is good. Yes. Because it can become well, that's why we're difficult, the, we're you know, when you when you start hitting like maybe forty or something, well, that's, that's, then your eyesight starts diminishing what? a little bit. Your energy, <clears throat> your mental energy. Uh, even I was telling a friend about this the other day with chess. Chess, great chess players, they start falling off around thirty. Actually, like yeah. wow. you start getting too old. But I don't have to sleep as much. I was so. true. The, this is what they say, but I don't know about that. I still need to sleep. Yeah, well, he has a he has a, a daughter, and I said to him, "We're reading War and Peace right now because Kai read War yeah. and Peace, and we're all just trying to get that all under our belt." And uh, I said, "I don't. I'm trying to read this and you know Proust and other long texts before I have a kid because it's." I just don't see that happening, and that's going to drag me right into the forties, and oh, I'll, no. be, I'll be brain dead by then. No, the, your your, uh, <laughs> totally your solution is simple: you just read War and Peace to your child. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Grimm's fairy tales, yeah. Hans Christian. This is, the, this is the right way to exploit children. My yes. my, my view is that you know I, I'm going to try and pump my kid full of full of literature and yes. poetry. Wind in the willows. Uh, yes, know, I'm going to raise them in the woods like. Uh, you know, <laughs> you have to do it before they become college age. In fact, I was thinking about this the other day. Your education should probably occur before you're 18. So by the time you're 18, you're ready to go. You hit the ground running. You don't need to go to some silly college. What are colleges going to be like in six, well 16 years for you <laughs> when your daughter's ready to go? My hope is that they will be very diminished in number. <laughs> 
they will that, all have gone bankrupt. Yes, and that their uh, endowments will have been applied to student debt <laughs> or other debts that the United States has. Yeah, has plenty to come. Mm-hmm. Well, it's fa- fascinating to get an inside look at the uh, inside workings of where your press is going. I wanted to rewind a little bit, though, because I think we got there. I mean, it was good to get there, but I wanted to know a little bit more about the captain's bookshelf oh, and the history of this region and how that was an impactful place. Because mm-hmm. I don't know much about it, but I keep hearing whispers of it. Yeah, and I, I can, I, your colleague at Bagatelle yeah, talked to me about I, this. I can tell you stories. Yeah, yeah, Patrick so, certainly dialed in. How how long was it a business? How long? I mean, I know you worked there in 2013, but how long was that a business? What kind of impact did it have 70, on the region? 76. I'm gonna I'm gonna fudge some of these details, but uh, there are f- every year fewer and fewer persons who can who can recount the details anyway. So I'm sad I missed this this era. Oh yeah. Well, it was strange too because I mean we had offhand I could think of uh, um, a couple that would travel to Asheville expressly for the Cabin's Bookshelf from Alaska once a year. And meanwhile, even when I was working there recently before we closed the brick and mortar, I would meet Asheville locals, even, even you know, more real, so to speak, locals that have been here for two decades, and they've never even heard of it. <laughs> so that was not uncommon. Um, was it centrally located? Or? It was on Page Avenue, facing the Grove Arcade, so right at the North tip of so that's downtown central, proper. That is central. Yeah. Oh, it was a very good location. And it had been in that location since 1990. It's been downtown, I think, since 76. Um, so we had three locations over over those decades. And uh, from 1990 to um, when the there pandemic... Three locations? Yeah, within downtown. Oh, oh, you mean it shifts? I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I, I heard three locations. My mind drifted. No, not three at a time. No, it was they, Barnes and Noble. They moved three times. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Chan and Megan, the owners, they started. They, they're. Uh, I think Megan got to Asheville when she was a kid. I think Chan, Chan was from Asheville for a long time, but uh, they they opened a new bookstore in South Carolina, but I think before '76, and then decided they new books it weren't for them, so they went into the used and rare book trade came back to Asheville. He opened the, the old joke, you know, it's, you have those, re, those uh, brick-and-mortar retail stores, and there's all, you hear the same things from customers every day, and one of the common uh, refrains was, oh, you must be the captain. Channel always say, no, that was my father. He's a naval captain. He gave him the $10,000 loan to start the business. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So he named it the Captain's Bookshelf. Um, so that started, I think, in 76, um, and the Page Avenue location uh, was established in 1990, and uh, Chan was uh, good friends with a lot of um, this very particular literary movement. Some of which came from Black Mountain College. Yes, a lot of uh, so there's a press that still runs out of Black Mountain too. Yeah, is that related well, there's a, to there's what, a mu- what he's there's a museum, Black Mountain College Museum. They publish that, that might be what okay what you're describing, and so you had Black Mountain College was a strange. Uh, mid-century experiment. Uh, a lot of poetry out of that. Yeah, you go to college and all your professors are are published, you know, first rate at least in their own circles. Poets and photographers and painters and architects. Um, Jonathan Williams is the big name out of there. He was he was a publisher that I really like almost nothing about him, and yet he's uh, in a way my role model for publishing. <laughs> he, had, he had jargon press and. Uh, 
He was he was unafraid. He's sort of like David Lynch, where he just doesn't care yeah. what people think of it, and it's, it's admirable because it's never. There was a name for tainted. that for that poetic group, wasn't it? There was a it was like the Renegade Poets or something like that. Yeah, there were there were a lot of little packages and um, and eras, and they, they have some connections with like Patchen and Rex Roth and. All the way out to Ginsburg and City Light Book, City Lights Books, all those. Yeah, they were all bedfellows at various times. Um, That's quite an intricate. Uh, it is. I mean, it's none of none connection. of it's my kind of poetry, but but it, I admire so many aspects of what they were up to. I saw to. a copy of Howl framed in your kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> that is <laughs> shuts your damn door. <laughs> so what's the? Uh, what's I wouldn't dare. <laughs> what was the? Uh, the Buckley, what was the the Buckley explosion? That's that's what that's what just came to mind. Uh, so, there the lineage of the story it does it ties into the black. But Chan was story. good friends. I yeah. mean, he was he was good friends with uh, Jonathan Williams, um, and a lot of these book people that uh, we had we had talked previously about this distinction between the parochial and the provincial, mm-hmm. and a lot of what they were doing in the South at the time was not provincial at all. Um, so they. I mean, Walker Percy would be a good example of uh, not really giving a damn what the New York literary scene was like uh, in terms of uh, his own work. But uh, so there's the Black Mountain College people. Uh, there's the you know the, the the beat people, the residue of the of the beat generation. There's the Southern authors, the Southern fugitives. Yes, mixed in a little bit. Those them I, I love Southern poets. That's the I love them. Yeah, the Flannery O'Connor. One of my when I when I started, Carson I've been McCullers. Yeah, I've been back and forth between Texas, where I went to school, uh, and and Asheville a few times. And one of the times I came back and started working again for Chan. My uh, my duties as a, as a bookseller was to drive Flannery O'Connor's classmate up to Abingdon, Virginia. <laughs> Mm. They used to work on the newspaper cartoons together at their college. Wow. So, it was, yeah, tapped into a, a strange and lovely uh, collection of, of literary uh, and otherwise artistic people. Um, and so it was easy, I suppose, in a sense, to sell books then because, you know, if you're on a first-name basis Walker Percy, then you get the first editions and you get the signed copies. Um, and it was, all, it was all pretty convenient. And then there were a lot of uh, fans and critics built, built you know, concentric circles coming out of, of that experience. A lot of literature coming out of Asheville, actually, over the past hundred years, kind of... Hey, Thomas Wolfe is the big... Yeah, that's what I, I wanted mean, to say. I, although, he gets brought up a lot. I got, I, I'm with Faulkner here. Faulkner described his prose as uh, an elephant trying to do the hoochie-coochie. So, <laughs> well, wait, 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 Faulkner... But Faulkner still admired him, I, I would say, to mm. a point. I and mean, even people who said he was overly romantic... I, li- I like Thomas Wolfe. I, I was. I really like Thomas Wolfe. I don't, I don't think really he's like Faulkner. Um, <laughs> I don't either. I don't either. Actually, we can take I'm, the fisticuffs I'm, outside. I'm unbelievable. <laughs> I just I don't understand it. Well, uh, Thomas Wolfe. This is actually good. Uh, this is a great great transition with publishing and editing. Is that Thomas Wolfe? I don't think could have uh, could have done what he did without Maxwell Perkins. Mm. I, I can't say the same for Faulkner. I mean, Maxwell Perkins. The, the amount of editing. And, and ha- hand-holding even at times that uh, that Perkins had to do with uh, Thomas Wolfe. Right. It's a little bit unjust, I suppose, to, to Wolfe because he had to do the same thing with Fitzgerald. I mean, All Maxwell Perkins was the guy in Fitzgerald's passenger seat that drove into the lake. Yeah, and Hemingway. All of those novels have been cut. 
But the amount well of... Well down from what Wolf handed him in manuscript. Right. right. And I was going to say, the, the amount of, um, of editorial care and purgation that yeah. Wolf went through seems to me... And he was stubborn. He's a stubborn yeah. guy. Yeah. But you can't, you know... I think that is part of the process, though, of even making a book, is you are going to find an editor, and you know that the editor is going to help you make the book come into being... Oh so, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, we're dealing with well, that Perkins with a couple authors among the finest editors there, ever. There. Yeah, that's right. He really was. Yeah, he's lovely. Yeah, you can't really have a conversation about the literary the scope of Asheville without Wolf vacationed in in Asheville, actually. Clay, Clay, it's true. Zelda Fitzgerald died in the died in the sanitarium in Montford. Oh wow! It burned down while she was in it. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh my god! So but you, that's why you have these people poking around Monford looking for the ghost of Zelda Fitzgerald. It's oh, really no kidding. Times of night. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So frost, though. Yes. If we can transition a little bit. Um, why frost? Uh, there's uh, there's a few reasons that that's that's a perfect time to address this this marketing issue because what you want is uh, you want one angle of marketing. You want to be able to say, like, uh, this, so this book, An Introduction to Robert Frost, A Talk with Notes, as it's titled. Um, you want to be able to say, uh, this is, this is um, a schoolboy introduction to Frost. This is an introduction to Frost for, uh, for high schoolers, like mm-hmm. one clean angle. We don't have that. What this book is is, like, two dozen different things, all... all uh, just as just as excellent reasons as as any of the others, and so this book, uh, how it came to be, uh, is convenient because one of my my uh, mentor in classics, Carl Maurer, is a is a professor of classics at the University of Dallas. It's strange, in fact, that he wound up there at all. Is um, a great classicist, maybe even a better professor of poetry, and it was always awkward because he would put. <laughs> He would often put to shame a lot of the English professors, and you know that's not your field, so you're not allowed to do this. Um, so you have at at a, at a good university, you might have you might have a teacher who's okay or a teacher who's downright bad, and then you have like a first-rate professor, like teaching is plainly their vocation. But then you might have a first-rate poet on top of that. Uh, so like, why are you even teaching? You know, like, you could be anywhere publishing anything, and that was what Maurer was like. Is that true, you think? Of, could you, could you really? Could you really? Is that good? Be anywhere? (laughs) Yeah, so a good example of this is, uh, there is a kind of, um, the work that a classicist does, uh, the, the paragon of classical work, you might say, would be releasing an edition of an author. So let's say you're doing, uh, Virgil. And so you're going to do three things. You're going to um, take the text, uh, and th- the way you have the text, if you're, if you're reading Virgil in Latin, what's been done by the editor is you've taken every manuscript that's extant, and you've arranged them in a gene- genealogical pattern. So there's a science to, there's a science, both a science and an art to textual criticism. It's the most difficult. You have to be talented and sensitive, and your Latin's got to be excellent. Um, and so you select from these variant readings what you think is the best reading, uh, and that's what the text is. And so if you're looking 
at a text of Virgil's Aeneid, you'll have the text, and then you'll have what's called a critical apparatus, which is the variant readings. So the readings, in other words, that the editor did not choose. Mm-hmm. So you release the text, you release your translation, and you release a commentary. That's kind of like the, the old gold standard. And the, the person who does that is presumably the very best. Like, that's the Virgil guy. He's mm-hmm. a preeminent Virgil scholar. Um, and you've got a few publishing houses that do this. So Oxford is one. Um, that's really the one, isn't it? There's, there's a German one, uh, Teubner. Uh, so you'll have, if you're a student in a university, uh, you're reading from a text, you're reading through cities, you're going to have uh, an OCT, an Oxford classical text, or you'll have a Teubner edition. Okay. That's the German one. There's a lesser-known French version, but it's not as often not as good. Um, so this is what happens. The, whoever, by whatever means, proves himself to be the, the best Caesar scholar uh, goes to Oxford, and, and if it's appropriate, then a new text is commissioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Oxford, uh, the, the Thucydides people, who are like the nastiest, oldest, meanest, uh, <laughs> Sir, Sir Kenneth Dover, uh. one of them, uh, they liked Karl Maurer, and hmm. they invited him to uh, wow. to do the Thucydides edition. And his answer was, uh, no, I've got to stay here and teach my students. <laughs> wow. So we got very lucky. So he died in 2015. He uh, is He's a very strange bird. He, he went to uh, Dartmouth, studied classics, spent 15 years. I think he had a, uh, a bit of money, an inheritance. He spent 15 years learning... Every language under the sun, it seems, uh, learning Russian, writing plays with uh, uh, Russian playwrights and things like this. He even forgot Greek and Latin, more or less. So <laughs> when he went back to graduate school 15 years later at UPenn, he had to uh, teach himself Greek and Latin again. But in, That's in, incredible, though. In that interim, um, he went down, he got, he got married in South America, um, well, I don't know if the wedding itself was in South America. His wife, Barbara, is, I think, Argentinian. I might, she might be Chilean. I, might, I think Argentinian. Anyway, he goes down to South America in 85, and he gives two seminars. One's on Auden, and one's on Frost. And uh, the Frost seminar was very uh, popular to the extent that Borges says, I want to know who this American is. Oh, wow. Knows so much about Frost. And this is something I omitted from the introduction because it was a little too spicy. Um, but he, uh, yeah, he goes, he goes with Borges, uh, uh, to dinner one night and Borges says, let me stop in my apartment and get my Frost book. Uh, Cause I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, but Mallard didn't need it. He knew Frost by heart. Uh, <laughs> so, wow. Uh, so this book, uh, Carl Mauer's brother, Christopher, uh, he notified myself and, and Adam, my co-publisher that he had a box of materials that he had saved from the seminar. Uh, on Frost, and so we he was very good to send us scans of everything. So we didn't know what we could use and what we couldn't. So we got everything, and um, when he taught this seminar on Frost, he gave um, an introductory lecture that would define the entire class, and that's the first half of the book. It's, it's called a talk with notes, so the talk is the lecture um, to his students in order to orient them. And then uh, we have... L- virtually line-by-line commentary of six poems. That's what we had to pay money for to reprint these uh, six Frost poems. And then we have a section called Fragments. Who did you have to pay that to? Uh, Holt. Holt, that's uh, who has the license to this? Yeah. yeah, we had to pay for licenses. It was like $50 a poem. Oh, that's... 
Yeah, a little tough. Yeah, yeah could have been could have been better. But anyway, so the book, uh, and, then, and then there's fragments, which are these strange. I mean, it should, should read you some, but um, you can if you'd like. Yeah, 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 these, well, yeah. I mean, you know, when you're done with it, make sure you plug where you can get it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, for real. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So the idea is you're kind of well, so one idea is Frost is one of the, maybe the the most read American poet and least understood mm. simultaneously. Uh, and so we joke in the preface. Adam wrote the preface to this. He did an excellent job. And he we joke, uh, what better place to uh, to shatter the conceptions of Frost and relearn about him than what is it, like 6,000 miles south of Boston? Uh, in Argentina, that's it's the yeah. strangest place. Right. And that's that's why we designed it the way we did. Um, it's a romantic country. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, it's funny, we talk about how, how we want to go to our Buenos Aires to well, he's, he's always absorb that energy. That's a unique country in South America. Oh, yeah. It's, just, it's a great, strange place to learn about the great, strange poet that and is And they Frost. may have beat France today, though I didn't want Oh, it. we don't know. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll look it up. But, um, but uh, Frost, you know, he's always pigeonholed as this rustic, charming, rustic uh, New England poet. Yeah. And um, it's, it, uh, Really seems to get in the way of any uh, decent understanding of, his or even verse. allegorical. You know, yeah. you know, two He's very harsh in the wood. And Frost is very hard. Supposedly, you know, there's the old the old story about being asked about that. You uh, know? Yeah, and he says, "No, there was. I was really in the woods. There were two paths." <laughs> yeah, it was. It wasn't about. Uh, the, oh, know, by the way, you'd ask allegory. like what all what all goes into a new edition uh, of stuff yeah. that's being yeah. redone. So. Uh, we, I was joking with Adam when we started this book. I said, we're not going to be textual critics. Like, we're just going to use the text of whatever the most normal edition is. This is always this temptation. Uh, but the last edition of Frost, the poetry of Robert Frost, as it's called, edited, it's the first one that, that attributed uh, its, its editing to an editor. And that editor, Latham, I think, Latham's his name, yeah, we condemned him straight to hell. We had to go back. Um, and select the best text because he was in for, for a Catholic man to condemn someone. Oh yeah, he's uh, <laughs> he's <laughs> <That's> in dark. <laughs> oh, he's easily in uh, one of the lowest. It was a sin against circles. God. There are nine circles. It's amazing. <laughs> well, he he made emendations to to Frost text, and I can't remember the figure. It was something uh, ungodly like a uh, thousand, two thousand emendations, and only a handful of them were explained. Wow, that's a huge. A huge uh, issue, and the reason why it's so huge is because the previous edition of Frost's work, collected poems or something, Frost used that book when he was touring, and he had sent in corrections, and they made corrections in later printings. So that we trust, and so we had to reprint six Frost poems, and suddenly we have to go back and figure out which text is important because there's variant readings. So the woods are lovely, dark, and deep. Mm. That's punctuated differently depending on what edition you read. Wow. Mm. So you have uh, the Oxford comma, or you don't have the Oxford comma. The and that matters. Well, it matters. So you say, as a lot of people think of the Oxford comma as a, as a, uh, An elective. a point of fashion. But in this case, it's like uh, rather significant because the woods are lovely, comma, dark, comma, and deep. That's what Latham proposed. Uh, in the previous editions, we have the woods are lovely, comma, dark and deep, omitting the, the second comma. Now, this is the right, this I say is the right reading because dark and deep is a natural pair. Um, 
So they would be conjoined. If this were Latin, they'd be conjoined with que instead of et. Mm-hmm. It's a natural the, That com power, that comma, it goes back to what you had mentioned in Kai's poem. Remember? Yes, yes. Yeah, we were talking a little bit about uh, Jesus on the cross saying to the thief who repented, saying, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Versus I say to you, comma, Today you will be with me in Paris. Yes. <laughs> so there's like a there's a significant as, eschatological right. issue with where you put that comma. Did Jesus say you're going to go to heaven today, today with me, <laughs> which is assuming that heaven is paradise, um, and assuming that you know he'll have some disembodied existence That's or ability that. to go to this heaven, That's or is it assuming? When Jesus returns, you'll be with me in paradise, which is on earth. It's the it, most it's important big comma. question. Most important comma of all time, perhaps. <laughs> one, of, one, of, one of the most important commas of all time, at least for, I for English Kai, translation. You know, not, to die, not to get us off track, but I loved how Kai had said, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> well, but the thing was, Kai... He didn't really care how much he was... Well, he put the comma in a place that made it so that paradise is at the second coming and not which that is, day. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Which I sympathize with, but that's an aside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not insignificant. Yeah. yeah, no. So, one idea behind this book is it's uh, there's an aspect to it that is intentionally experiential. So, if you read through it, you're having a, 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 um, a specific sort of experience traveling down to Argentina, hearing the talk, reading the poems as if you're in a kind of class, and then you get the fragments, which is this collection of uh, Karl Maurer reflecting on on certain Frost poems um, and reflecting back to the United States. And so one way to look at it is it's, it's strange. Because, oh, and then, f- f- excuse me, fin- uh, following the fragments is the letter that he wrote uh, to be accepted as a teacher down there. And so it, it all goes together in such a way that you get a lot out of it. You get, in, in one sense, you get your own English curriculum. Uh, you get your own Frost curriculum. You also get... Um, from this book. From this book. You also okay. get a, a, a clear sense of uh, Karl Maurer's own poetics, as well as Frost poetics. Um, but if you, if you read it in, in order, you have a certain coherence um, and experiential aspect of the book. Uh, that is very helpful and transformative. Um, of course, you could reference, you know, you could reference the six poems in order to, and look at one poem. But someone at the door. Oh. <laughs> oh. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> We're just, you're just about in time for the reading. I'm about to get a little bit of a reading out of his book uh, here. I'm really sorry. I'm interrupting. <laughs> Fine. That's all right. This is a podcast of life and energy. That's right. It's uh, natural. So we're bringing people. Hi. <laughs> nice to meet you. Um, so read read a few of these fragments because they're all cool. they're all Just pretty. Remind us because it's been a, what exactly the title of the book is. Oh yeah, this is this, this is the debut title. It's uh, an introduction to Robert Frost. Right. A talk with notes by Karl Maurer. Perfect. And, which includes in the middle of it six six Frost poems reprinted. Uh, so let's see. Uh, our course is not a lecture course, but a seminar in which, after today, every student I hope will take an active part. 
but today I'm going to begin by reading you a rather long lecture, and I've given you copies of this so that you can read it silently as I read it aloud. I ask you not to feel put off by the strangeness of this. The copies are to help you concentrate. My lecture can be compared to a crude travel report of a country which the reader has never seen. The writer describes what are for him the most important features of that country. His aim is not to be exhaustive, but to be vivid. The reader will not completely understand the place being described, but if he feels excited about this or that detail, if he wants to go and see it for himself, then the report, however clumsy, has served its purpose. So that's like a snatch of a professor talking to students that you would never, almost never hear mm. uh, in, in university. Mm. It's um, very strange. And of course, he's describing the talk at the beginning of the book, which you're already familiar with by this point. Uh, and then I'll read one or two more. I must o- oversimplify Frost for the sake of analytical clarity. But after all, my purpose today is not to summarize, but only to introduce him. My lecture is meant as nothing more than a good, solid little table on which we can work. I quoted Frost's prose just now, not only for the pleasure of reading it aloud, and not only to give you a first taste of him, but because it is perhaps a confession. When he says he likes griefs, and that good poetry leans its breast to a thorn, as if it loves suffering, and should be left free to go its way in tears, he is speaking playfully, as always, but he is also serious. Uh. So that's, I mean, that parag- those two paragraphs alone are worth more than most uh, literary theory books on Leaning Frost. against the thorn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, he, and then it gets stranger, too. The next page, I'll say, Neruda, the pantheist, at home in the world, as if the world were exactly suited to us, we feel how nice it would be to feel like that. With Frost, we feel that's exactly how things are. Mm. Yeah. Let's, let's drum up one. It just lacks all pretentiousness, right? That's you know he's cutting the fat, and I, it's, there's such a temptation. There's no dross with someone like even with someone like Frost to fatten it up unnecessarily when trying to study it. But that's he's getting to just the heart of it, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Let me let me read this too. So a lot of these you'll see are glimpses. Uh, to little snatches of uh, of classroom digressions, and so you feel well. You're the student too, and that's right. Um, but even he could be talking about anything, and just the way he talks about it. Just I mean, even if you're only looking at the pedagogy, is the way the professor instructs the students. It's uh, like almost sui generis, this sort of um, of like deadly serious chat that's also full of humor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the last one I'll read here. Uh, Today, with your kind permission, I want to go very fast through a large number of poems, 11 or 12 poems. We have no time to analyze the best of them in depth, as we did with five or six poems on Monday and Tuesday. Nor can we waste time digressing and chatting. We must be disciplined. I shall recite each poem while you read it attentively and be ready to ask about anything that is obscure or strange to you. And then I'll make general comments about the poem without trying to probe too deeply into individual lines or images. I'm sorry for this speed and this abstractness. I don't like it. By nature, I am a digressor, but I want to read, if we can, all the poems on the syllabus. Having once committed ourselves to a crude, thematically analytic plan for the course, 
will march bravely through to the end, resisting any temptation to linger by the way. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but we have promises to keep and miles to go before we sleep. <laughs> so I want to say here, I do want you to think about the thematic categories and to ask me any question that comes into your head concerning them, anything that puzzles you. I say all this not because I'm in love with my own creation, with my own way of understanding Frost, but because it is, after all, one real way of beginning to understand him. In thinking about these categories, you think about Frost's message to us, his analysis of the human condition. Poetry itself is thinking, meditation, even knowledge. Every poem is, like West Running Brook, the analysis of something puzzling. It analyzes by means of images, by comparing one thing with another. If the analysis is good, the images are beautiful. And perhaps, in the end, it is this beauty that matters above all. But in a little course like this, we have no time to linger and gaze too long in this or that place in the forest. We first must find a path through it. Afterwards, when you know your way around a little, you can pause anywhere to admire any tiny detail. But at least, because of this crudely schematic little week, you will know your way home again. It will be good if, after this course, you have, very clear in your head, my little map of the territory. Hmm. But let me give one last illustration of what I mean. I confess I feel tempted even now to throw out the whole plan for the course and to skip all the shorter poems that I don't love, like that one in which the birds sigh and weep, and instead to explore inside and out one of Frost's many long dramatic poems which I do love, and which, along with rest-running book and directive, show him at his most self-forgetful, strange, and inspired. But I refrain from doing this because, after all, it is something that you can someday do for yourself. And I think that when you do enter that strange territory, you might be grateful for this clumsy map I gave you. For this clumsy map I gave you. <laughs> That's right. And that I, I did omit that in the contents. The one thing I omitted from the contents is this thematic map of Frost poems, and I've never seen anything like it. Um, the visions are very helpful. Ooh. Frost poems are oozing out of this man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, nobody knew Frost. To the point Frost where his, he's that, quoting him beautiful while he's yeah. expositing. It's very nice. Yeah. Right, so this book, we did, in itself. we did the old trick. We had no capital when we began, and this was our debut publication. So there's something that, a trick that wasn't foreign to pu- publishers for a long time, where you say, well, we're going to do a limited edition, um, and if you want to be a patron, you can... You can buy copies of this limited, and it's priced such that uh, that money will fund not only the limited, but the whole print run. Mm. And so we printed 100 numbered copies, and then 26 lettered, which are a little bit a little bit finer binding. The title page is printed in blue. And that allowed us to publish this book initially with, with no capital. Uh, and the idea is, as soon as possible, hopefully next year, we're aiming for a trade issue, so not a limited, but... Because this is the numbered copies. There, are, there are maybe a dozen still available. Can I ask you just uh, you know the economic question? Sure. How, how have you sold a decent amount of these? Oh yeah, well we have a hundred were offered to the public, and we have maybe a dozen left. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. Well, I reserved I reserved ten of them just so that we we didn't have zero copies for whatever that's reason. That's good. Uh, but we have, uh, I don't know the exact figure, maybe 12 left. These were 125 each offered to the public. They, it's a terrible margins because... I know that taints a discussion to say, how much, you know, no, how many they, have you sold? But it's interesting they, to know, like, they, how many are left, you know? Yeah, well, they cost $80 to make. So the wow. margin, those are very bad margins. Um, like, we could have sold them for 200 each, and it would have been 
just. But um, I wanted a hundred and a quarter. I said, we'll do, we'll do the first book, we'll do it right, not care about the margins, um, and go from there. So these were 125 The trade issue, um, I'm aiming at $30 maybe. That's, that's still pretty, I think that's a pretty good margin, you know? Yeah. Well, it's so funny because books, uh, everything else uh, with inflation and the even worse inflation of the recent the last five years, Prices have gone up for everyth- everything under right. the sun. Prices have gone up. But for some reason, everybody holds in their mind book prices from 20 years ago. Well, right. that, that's largely because of the used market. Is You know, you go to a used bookstore. You can well, get... More so than, than the used market, it's that... So this print-on-demand phenomenon creates not just good or even excellent margins. It creates impossible margins. I think I, I might have told you that already. It's like, it's like uh, taking steroids. Like once you're juicing, like you're not going back. There's no you, after you're juicing, you're going to stop maybe when you're caught, or maybe. Uh, but you're not going to like get get eight hours of sleep and three square meals. And so you're saying sort of the Amazon phenomenon of. I'm saying when you when you make a book, whether it's original material or or a reprint, uh, the, the status quo now is uh, is print on demand, mostly through Amazon. So Amazon fulfillment. Uh, so what you'll do, in other words. The way it used to be, you've got a title. Let's say, let's say Fitzgerald comes out of nowhere to, to, to Maxwell Perkins, who's making the case for this new obscene author, and Scribner has to look at this manuscript and say, uh, "Will this? We're, we're like making a gamble, and uh, how many copies are we going to print? We think it's maybe good enough to print." 2,000 copies. Maybe we're going to be conservative and print 1,000. But the more we print, the cheaper it is per unit. So you're making all these calculations and you're betting on your man, who is the author. Uh, and then you've got to house them, or the distributor has to house them, but you've got to pay the distributor. With print-on-demand, you don't have to do anything um, because somebody pays $5 and it's printed. So you don't have to house anything. You don't have to, you don't have to make uh, right. any wager on anybody. Uh, and I think uh, I think it's unethical and perverse, and uh, in many aspects, inhuman. And so this is the the more humane way of doing it. I say is um, is you, and and it's honorable to take that gamble to say this might not sell, but it's good prose. And often when you do that, you know, a decade later, people notice, <laughs> and they're yeah. like, oh "My goodness, we need it." Right. Uh, there will be things that last past this era we live in. Yeah, the, the, everything though it's it's tempting to throw ourselves into the mix of it all and to say, you know, we've got to just run with the times and just do the things of the time right. and become mar- part of the mass consumption sort just of brigade. The way things are. It's just the way things are. But <clears throat> what we often talk yeah. about is that there's the, the the writers of now, most of them, unfortunately. Th- won't, they're not going to be remembered. It's just they're like our pop stars, right? You know, Taylor Swift's number one right now, but is she still? Who will she be in fifteen years? <laughs> who will she be? Maybe she'll be Britney Spears in fifteen years. And who will Britney Spears be? Probably, <laughs> I don't know. But I don't mean to drag these names into our beloved podcast here. But <laughs> dust to dust. But <clears throat> culturally speaking, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> the, the things that we sort of chase in the meantime are not going to last. As long as something like that. To the people who bought that, that's going to last. It's maybe probably, for most of those people, going to get handed down. Um, it's going to be part of collection. It's going to be like the books that you choose and select for your bookshelf to hand down to mm-hmm. Ines. Mm-hmm. You know, you, there are books that you buy to read and discard, but then there are 
are finer things. The right. there there's uh, yeah these are so not, we, not disposable. What we have to sacrifice now is the profit right. to make something that's going to last. Right. You could make sure you could mass market paperback any of these books. They won't make it through, right. the, through this era if you do that. So you take the net, you take the the high road, and it's not making it now, but it will stand the test of time. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll see. I think, I mean, at least the way we've made these books, yeah, it's. I, no, who's who's really making a book like this in twenty twenty two? The closest there there are a few, but this, not not many. The more the more I uh, ask and investigate, talk to other publishers, the more I discover that their standard everything in their catalog now is digitally printed, as opposed to offset lithography, which is kind of the. This looks like something in your, in your Irving. <laughs> yeah, it really does, and that's I can see that. It, well, that's that's the most helpful part of working the used and rare book trade for for ten years, and that's probably what got me into publishing because I handled so many beautiful books, and I just can't understand why nobody's doing it. Now. I mean, everybody it's it's very common. It's almost a meme. The uh, it is a meme. The the architectural ugliness. It's like everybody, everybody. Um, all those like side by side, the lifted facades and everything. Yeah. Um, but what's so frustrating about this is everybody's still participating in a framework that actually produces the ugly buildings. Right. And I, I saw this all the time. Because you got to eat. You got to eat. But I, yeah. yeah, I don't know how much of it is is um, is intentional or not. But always uh, in Cabin's bookshelf, when we had finally uh, there was finally an expiration date on the brick and mortar, uh, customers would walk in. They'd say, oh, "I love the smell of this store." They'd walk, make a lap around, take pictures for Instagram. And leave, but in the middle of that, it's the most modern bullshit I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> in the middle of it, every time, in the middle of it, they'd say uh, they'd assume we were going out of business, meaning like, like oh, the internet finally got to us. Like, really, Chan, Chan, you know, he he wanted to uh, to smoke reefer and watch the Bears. He, he just didn't want to deal with the asshole public. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. His words, and uh, <laughs> and uh, so they, everybody assumed that we were closing, and so these people would say, "Ah, it's such a such a shame." And, uh, of course, these are the same people going home and buying everything under the sun on Amazon. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like, you can, if you want beautiful things, you can. You have to pay for them. Yeah. Well, you have to pay for them, but you also have to, you have to go, get into this very uncomfortable way of living where you're, you're omitting, uh, you're omitting. That's the cost, though. You're omitting things, and then you're actively pursuing other things. But that's, that's the ultimate paying for it. Yeah, that is. That's you the know, real cost. Yeah. Well, when you say pay for them, it's not just money. Yeah, right. Yeah, because we can make thirty and forty dollars. I mean, that's a fourteen dollar book, the Seven Poems book. But you know, it, uh, when it when it comes, I, I like to buy nicer editions if I can of certain books, and I'll I'll spend. I think my cap on a book for a hardcover copy I'd want would be a hundred bucks, mm-hmm. typically. Um, it's a generous cap. I think so. I think if I really I remember want that it, when I'm pricing our books. If I want it, and and um, and go up to hundred, I'd really have to want it. I'd really want to have to yeah. to seek it, or it would really have to be something I want to keep on that shelf forever. Most people, I mean, there is the practicality of a book, right? Uh, cost. There are just you know we love to read, but we're you know economically speaking, we are limited to 
a lot of the beauty we pursue in what we read has to be in what we read. It can't be in the edition necessarily. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. So, I mean, well, let's say, practically speaking, we can't, can't ignore the fact that some of these sons of bitches are paying $1,200 for a phone, and they scoff at a $20 book price. That That is uh, a strange inversion. Yes, twenty dollars one thing, but like I said, but that's more common. I mean, your threshold is, I think, exceptional. A hundred dollar threshold is. Yeah, I mean, I, I bought um, what what do I have on my shelf? That's you know, I, I bought the not that long ago. I bought a, a fifty dollar early edition of nineteen eighty four. You know, I just wanted a nice old hardcover of it. Yeah. I don't like the mass market stuff with that. But I wanted, I've, I've read most of Orwell's canon. I like Orwell. Yeah. So I wanted to have the nicer editions of that. I'll, yeah. I'll throw down for something like that. I would, you know. The, would, the landscape, though, is, I mean, even in the early days of mass market paperbacks, the signatures were still sewn. They weren't perfect bound. And so those, it's so funny how the standards have shifted in such a way that, that the early mass markets were actually better made than hardcover editions today. Well, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and it's a it's a pain. I, I've been this this has come up a lot in my conversations recently. Where you know they talk about the uh, the cave beneath the cave, mm-hmm. Aristotle's allegory of the cave. I think mm-hmm. maybe been uh, yeah Plato's allegory of the cave, um, where uh, Benedetti was maybe the first one to point to a cave beneath the cave, which is much more abundantly clear now that we have shadows of shadows which is mm-hmm. instagram and facebook mm-hmm. and so on but my point is this is that the uh any kind of standard we've actually uh you know before uh doing the old-fashioned thing of pursuing the heavens you know storming the heavens uh we're actually our humanity has been compromised and so we, where we're starting out it's like uh we have to learn to be human first which nobody ever had to do um so you talk about uh, i mean you can look at any category you could look at whole foods it's a pretty recent phenomenon of processed foods or, or, or microwave cookbooks or all this disposable <laughs> culture of the 50s. <laughs> well, now we've got to like return, you know, before the 50s, let's say, arbitrarily. It's like you could be buying a really fine suit or you could be buying work pants, but it's n- neither of them are synthetic. And so your starting out point is, is fine. And now it's like the amount of... The amount of like blog posts and footnotes and essays you have to read in order to guarantee that the food you're buying or the clothes you're buying or the books you're buying mm-hmm. are made by real people with real ingredients—it's a nightmare. It's well, like it's, it's so, you know, it goes back to that meme of you know they tell you to go outside and then the outside and it's the right. strip mall and the Exxon sign. <laughs> and if you think about it, and uh, what, what you're talking about is a disengagement from your culture entirely. A cultural separation yeah, right I, out of the womb. We describe it as uh, in my recent conversations as a radical omission. Radical uh, omission. Like when I when I started, it was long. T- it was in high school when I first discovered that there was a kind of film that's conceived of as a piece of art, and that's not surprising because most of our exposure to film is the Hollywood machine. It's all exploitation. Uh, you have exceptions of people with their own money occasionally, like Coen Brothers or Wes Anderson, let's say, but. Um, by and large, the Hollywood machine just turns out ever since ever since the release of Deep Throat, merely exploitative films. Mm-hmm. So when I first discovered this, well, this kind of film that actually conceives itself as art and it plays by the same rules as uh, a symphony or a painting or whatever, uh, I always had, I immediately had this trouble where friends would come over and I'd say, "You want to watch this?" 
Hitchcock film, and they say, who's Hitchcock? And I say, well, it's just this film, you're going to like it. And they say, is it black and white? And I say, oh my gosh. Yeah. And they say, I, I don't want to watch it. And so what I discovered... That's when I got new friends. <laughs> yeah, right. What I discovered is what's, um, what's got to happen is, uh, is if, if, you wanted to, if you were honestly interested in, in real film... And not just like the French New Wave. Like there's lots of obviously lots of other films that are quite good. They don't don't play by the goofy French New Wave rules. But uh, if you wanted to honest to pursue this honestly, you would discover very soon that you've got to radically omit uh, like binge watching Netflix and streaming Hulu and yes. just like the incessant noise. You've got to actually put a stop to that because otherwise you're never going to get past chapter. Well, these are wedges. These are these are doing damage to yeah. your cultural identity. Yeah, virtually. I mean, separating. Virt- virtually nobody could turn on like a film by Kurosawa, like even, even like Rashomon. Not, not even to mention Ron. This is like Rashomon. It's exhausting to watch for somebody who's been weaned on Hollywood titles. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to radically omit. And then it's kind of like the more you, you watch your Chaplin, you watch your Hitchcock, and like then but eventually the, the, you get stamps when you're so young, though. They hit. They hit you so young. You're, do, you're yeah. primed for it from the onus on parents is like a. It's but is it even on parents? <laughs> I mean, do parents really? It's, it's like the question of free will. Is there really a free will if 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 it's the only food on the table? There's a, there's a lot working against you. That's there's a sure. lot for sure. Yeah. So we're heading into the home stretch of this anyway, and uh, we've learned a lot, um, a lot about well, not only how seriously you take your business and printing and where you hope to take it but how um, how much goes into that I, I did want to ask you why you didn't first of all where does, does the name Irving come from for Irving Bucco and why didn't you keep that as sort of the extension of your publication why didn't you merge those what, what, was, oh, the, yeah. what was the reason well, that's, for that's keeping easy. that separate yeah so the uh, the governing principle here it's, it's a little bit reactionary on my part it's that I can't it's like ever since I want to say is the turn of the century where like suddenly you go into any uh, any city and you see these brick and mortars that say like uh, pin and quill provisions and you look at it and you're like I don't know what they sell here I have no idea what it is like gone are the days of like Nancy's Diner where it's a diner owned by Nancy mm-hmm. um, or like um, Tom Tom's General Store and they actually sell. Uh, cast irons and aftershave and what you know pencils whatever um, so I don't like this this weird this weird gimmick this love of I mean it was the same thing happened in, in clothes where like uh, we, we don't wear clothes according to station anymore because we hate uh, you know we, we hate uh, this formality and we despise the Victorian era so we can wear anything and so workwear became very popular or like naval themed clothes we wear anything and so likewise stores can name themselves according to any conventions and most of them name themselves according to conventions of public houses and like none of them are public houses um uh, one of, one of the stores i like in Asheville, the horse and hero where's that it's a uh, it's downtown downtown like right where the vance memorial it's like it's a, near salsas okay um and uh and that's um that's a shop for uh, artworks and illustrations and posters and prints and things. It's a lovely shop. But the Horse and Hero, this is, uh, that's the name of a public house or an inn. And this is very affected. I don't like it. And so 
so I have a penchant for if I'm going to name something, I I want to I want to name it without errors. And uh, ever since I sort of the last time I came back to Asheville, I kind of got stuck in Asheville because I was intending to go back to Dallas. But university is in Irving, which is ultimately named after Washington Irving. So I named it Irving Book okay. Company um, because I thought book buying in DFW would be much better than book buying in in Asheville. Um, and so, uh, anyway, um, so it's just the name of the place and what it is. It's Irving Book Company. I like that. Very on the nose. <laughs> right. right. No, it's good. Simple. I try yeah, I don't know I if you heard not what, to, not to why be presumptuous. I, I went with that. I asked him sort of why he separated the two names and didn't continue them under, yeah. so, uh, under the same name, the publishing versus the... Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I struggled with... I have the same... Uh, I'm just as annoyed with publishing houses with these silly, such like silly names. And of course, having handled so many books from, I love late 19th century and 20th century books. They're they're a little bit more modest. I, I like the commercial book, not the fine binding stuff. Just like Oxford University Press, Macmillan from the early 20th century. I think they're so charming and restrained. And so Charles Scribner is a name. Macmillan is a name. Benzinger Brothers is a name. And those are the publisher. And I thought, I've always been really sheepish about this activity um, because, like, who do you think you are? And I've gotten a lot of that flack. Like, who do you think you are to publish these books? Really? Um, People yeah. have struck at you. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of old colleagues or some of Carl Maurer's old students, like, who do you think you are to publish Maurer's books? And it's like, nobody's doing it. The only reason I'm doing this is because nobody is. Oh, man, there's that gatekeeping, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's really tedious. Who and do you so, think you are? Man, you're keeping something alive. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's no, no, no thankfulness. No gratitude at all. I, but I don't care. I've, it's good. It's been good for me because I'm, um, I'm a literary conservatoire. Yeah. <laughs> right. You gotta fend off the uh, the old. It's like the same thing. If you, if you don't want to wear pajamas in public and you put on a tweed jacket, it's like uh, who you do you think you fuck are? Fuck you! Yeah, what do you, th- you think you're an inkling? Like, <laughs> pajamas in public? It's LARPing. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It is the it is the official uh, modern day uh, Sunday garb. <laughs> so, I uh, it was Taylor Posey, publisher. I, I tried to persuade my. Uh, my partner Adam Cooper I said look you're doing half the work like this couldn't exist without you initially said well I mean it really couldn't exist without you you can't just do Taylor Co (laughs) or Taylor Taylor Publishing I mean Taylor then it's like really who do you think you are that name carries a lot of weight that's right believe me I know Posey fortunately is is a, a neatly poetical name and Cooper and Posey just sounds like it's just right. It's an old tradition. Posey is a, is the yeah. right in there on the nose again. Yeah, I think the who, who do you think you are comment comes a little bit from uh, a hatred of excellence and a hatred of, of of the idea that you would raise your head above others. Perhaps you know, like oh, you're. Wheat stock is now above ours. We have to cut it down. <laughs> no, no, that's right. I'm sure that's right. Um, and the same with so, the clothing. The same oh, with the man. clothing. Yeah, you I know. I teased you on the way on the way in. You're so my, son, my Sunday dress. dress. It's my Sunday. Um, I'd be wearing a bathrobe if it was in the other day. <laughs> We'll have to if catch all, you on the next one. we all respected ourselves to, <laughs> to dress a little bit more nicely, rather than in these 
World War II pajamas. <laughs> I bet the, the, the thought of fashion. going into public in pajamas horrifies me. Oh, man. Or sweatpants. Yeah, there was a great, the a great essay by a philosophy professor who was at the University of Dallas for a while, and it was all about this, uh, even as late as the 80s or, or well into the 90s, and the, the airport was considered a kind of a public forum. So you see people putting on nice clothes to travel. Right. Which is a complete. Inver- I mean, now you put on the like comfiest leisure wear to travel, but well, because it's so uncomfortable because they fit right. you in there like sardines, right? But isn't that strange? You have like not even a not even a businessman, but you know, just a, right, even a blue collar guy getting on an airplane, so he's got to wear a, a blazer. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it's it's, it's really, thought. It's incredible. I was you know even just watching movies pre nine eleven movies, you know, junk movies. Right. We were watching Home Alone the other night. <laughs> yeah, you learn a lot about it. And I'm watching people. Day. You're just watching the city scenes, people walking around New York, and they're all in nice trench coats in the winter. And, <sighs> and, and I'm, I'm looking at it going, what New it's York all, is that? It's all that? LARPing now. What New York is that? That is not New York now. <laughs> it's just, and that's only 25 years ago. Or yeah. maybe a little. 20. 20 Five to thirty years ago. Well, I think the reason, another one of the reasons why it's considered LARPing is because the grand drama that we all exist in doesn't in in the costuming that's going on for the grand drama. The question becomes, what role are you trying to play by dressing up, my friend? Right. No one in the drama is is playing that character. So, who is this character? And since you don't encounter it every day, you you don't know necessarily how to deal with this person who happened to dress themselves with some regality or some self respect. Right. Yeah. It's well. It's offensive because it's what's implied is is a, a philosophy that's imposed on the rest of us. It makes us feel very self conscious. Makes them feel inferior. Right. So when we were scheduling for today. We had to do it later in the afternoon uh, because you had to go to church, or you wanted uh-huh. to go to church. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, that's a good distinction. Yes. So, how how did you end up becoming Catholic? What is uh, yeah. what is that story? There's just, there's different, very different answers all over. Which I, are, are I'm true. so glad you asked this. I forgot. I was so I was <laughs> I was raised so in the south. The Bible Belt, uh, of course, Protestantism is the norm, and uh, the flavor of Protestantism, by and large, is uh, it's like a social club, right? Uh, you know, and uh, Baptists are very prevalent. There's been more Presbyterians, I think, in recent years, Calvinists, and that. Uh, I think Methodists have sort of. I haven't seen heard from them. There, there are. Uh, there's a Methodist church out uh, I, Lake yeah. Junaluska and so an enclave. It yeah, seems as, in, as far as the region Western goes, North Carolina. I've always most admired the Baptists because they just seem like a more honest folk. They're so hardline. Yeah, interesting. They're 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 hardcore. And they admittedly don't care about uh, theology. <laughs> and that's well. Other denominations purport to care about theology, but their theology is bent to whatever they're feeling in the next five minutes. So I can't trust them. Um, so uh, that is to say, my I I wasn't really raised in a particular way. I mean, I was raised with the the, the flavor of Protestantism and the flavor. I mean, my grandmother was a Baptist. My mother 
more or less the the, the that form of um, non-denominational Protestant that's like the social club thing. You know, it kind of goes with often goes with contemporary conservatism. Uh, my father is like your secular humanist agnostic, and uh, he, I mean, my parents divorced early, so he, uh, I, I saw him infrequently, and uh, he was just like a good American uh, agnostic, like, oh, whatever your passion is, like, until it's Catholicism, then it's a little bit uncomfortable, <laughs> but kind of I will support you a little bit, uh, but uh, initially both of my parents conceived of it as a cult, they were disturbed by this. Uh, for, for I think probably different reasons but it's not as to say Catholicism in the south uh, at least in western North Carolina is not popular um, you don't see a lot of Catholic churches here no certainly the main one I think is in downtown Asheville the Basilica yeah but that's it's all it's all informed by Protestantism there's a lot of Protestant flavor okay uh, and so and that's that's a little bit of a different question some uh, factions in the within the Roman Catholic Church, let's say. But uh, all I mean to say is that in, in Western North Carolina and the Bible Belt at large, Catholicism is is scarce, and most of the Catholicism that exists is uh, occasionally has a Protestant flavor. Um, so I didn't, uh, I didn't know, I hadn't seen uh, the church, really. I hadn't, hadn't encountered it. I wasn't raised with a particular, I was raised with no particular religious um, Instruction or catechesis, uh, no political instruction or catechesis. It's, I guess my is me. It's my mother, uh, and she was uh, working a lot. So <laughs> kind of tabula rasa ah. very, for me, very helpful because my teenage rebellion was a conversion, crossing the Tiber. Mm. Um, yeah, when I was sixteen, I converted, and uh, why I converted. Uh, one way to put it is I recognized the church. That's it. I, I just had never seen it before. Um, and I mean, I could say intuitively that either uh, what the church teaches is true or none of Christianity is true. Um, simultaneous with that, I, so I had no stumbling blocks. A, lo- a lot of Catholics who have converted, there'll be like one thing, like Mariology, like Marian teachings is like a stumbling block and they have to get over it, or like angelology or, or the authority of um, the chair of St. Peter. So there's always like something. For me, there was nothing. I just had never seen it before. And um, But simultaneously, I'll say that I started reading very seriously um, when I was like maybe third to eighth grade. Maybe I started reading a lot of... Uh, uh, it's quite young to begin seriously. Plato, reading. yeah. Yeah, I read eighth grade. And <laughs> Plato and Peter Kreft... Um, I tried the Aristotle. It was too, too difficult, but I, I kept on. Anyway, so I was reading these things, and there was a moment where I put up, I said, well, if anything's true, it's one of these inherited religions. I'm not going to go about you know, starting my own <laughs> <You could've. laughs> system. So I, I did for... The geography welcomes it here. You yeah. Know, <laughs> I did make a kind of study in my youth of uh, like uh, Buddhism and Judaism and Catholicism and Protestantism, but the school I, the school I attended was a non-denominational Protestant school with a Calvinist bent. So I was very familiar with uh, Protestant doctrine and culture, and I knew from the beginning I was hitting my head like very very at a very low point, um, and I just suspected it from the beginning. <laughs> so I never took it very seriously. 
Um, Are you attending a, a traditional Latin mass? Yeah, there's one at a. <laughs> there is there is a uh, website called Reverent Mass Finder. And I know culturally it's become very popular. Tradition. This is like raw milk finder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's so hilarious and like tragic that it's even that you have to find it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so there are two at, at least last time I checked, which was I think last week because I'd never checked it before. Uh, and there are two. There's St. Margaret Mary, which is out here in Swananoa. Uh, occasionally we'll, we'll say a Latin Mass. And then St. John the Baptist in Tryon. And this is very common now, especially with the influx of traditional Catholics. That it's, it's very ordinary for a family or, or a single person to travel as far as an hour to hear a Latin Mass. And Tryon from here is maybe just short of an hour. That's where you go. Uh, as much as I can. I mean, gas prices have been an issue lately. Um, but I, usually it's for Sunday mass, and it's an eight thirty mass, so you got And of course, it's completely packed, and everybody jokes about this that that the Novus Ordo, the New Order masses, it's like uh, it's it's like ten boomers. <laughs> that's the, that's the congregation, and then you go to a lad mass at eight thirty in the morning, yeah. and you've got uh, the elderly, you've got all like all kinds of children everywhere, married people and single people, and wow, uh, every like it's a hilariously perfect representation, and it's complete overflow. I mean, that's incredible. I'll arrive thirty minutes early, which is not that early, but it's 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 not insignificant. I'll arrive thirty minutes early, and there's no seat, um, and so yeah, the the. The Latin mass, the Latin mass, traditional Catholicism is like a whole uh, other conversation. But set of acantist. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I won't. I won't go so far. I'll say. I'll say this: that when during the Avignon papacy, there was, I think, three generations where the faithful had no idea who the Pope was, <laughs> and so I'm perfectly fine with uh, with Pope Francis saying some odd things now and then. Uh, best not to know what's going on at the Vatican. Hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Better to uh, better to know what's going on at the local parish. Yes, be a localist, not a globalist. That's right. Well, that's the principle. It's so funny because culturally and politically, the 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 people who are most disenchanted with uh, with the way things are going, let's say, and and most hungry for the real and the beautiful and so on and so forth, that whole thing. Uh, it's taken them years and years and years to arrive at what was um, what was explained by the Catholic Church at the beginning of the 20th century, the principle of subsidiarity. Um, that is to say, uh, in terms of crafts or production or labor, um, like you go to the closest first. And if you can't find it in the closest, then you go a little further away. But you don't start with the globalist. There's something deeply inhuman about it. And there's something that uh, invariably produces totalitarian regimes. Mm-hmm. Precisely what happened in the 20th century. Um, did I see some Chesterton hanging out somewhere nearby? Oh, there's Chesterton everywhere. Oh, that yes, was, that was Chesterton right there. When I converted, oh, I, I read a lot of uh, Chesterton. I just read. I, I just read that book. I told you, Saint Francis. Yeah, I did. That's one. That's one of his great works. It's. It was tough for me. It's definitely just a um, Prince of Paradox. It's just a. a <laughs> It's Chesterton. just, it's like a wine tasting, mm-hmm. each chapter. You're not actually getting the full, or the, really to the scope of it all. But it does provide an interesting oh, yeah. portrait think, of the I man. I think Chesterton's like candy, which is good, because a lot of people get sick from Chesterton. They hate him. I've always loved him. I mean, I've been reading him since I was... 
pro- probably 13 is when I started, 14 maybe. I started with Orthodoxy, which mm. I think is... I have not read Orthodoxy. It's maybe even a little better than St. Francis. Orthodoxy, Everlasting Man, St. Francis. I'll grab a copy Everlasting Man. Man Who's Thursday. Do you have a copy of that for sale? <laughs> which one? Man Who's Thursday? Uh, I think I'm I have trying some, to grab a copy I, I think I have some expensive early modern libraries, but... No, I didn't see it. Chesterton said. Well, he has a $100 limit. So. <laughs> I might have one for less than 100 We'll see. We'll take a look. I am, I am getting into Chesterton, but I've only read what I just read. So He's marvelous. He, he, he sells, too. Gloriously fat, that man. So maybe as we wind things down, you said there are a handful of Frost poems in this book you did. Mm-hmm. Could you read us one? Oh, sure, yeah. The central poem uh, is West Running Brook, which is where that image of the great white backward wave appears, which is why we have this wave motif on the covers. I like that connection. Yeah, it's... uh, as a principle of organization, it was very clear, and all the five other poems in the fragments continually make reference to West Running Brook. Even one of the fragments I read already named it. Um, so that's that's the, like cornerstone image uh, so far as the poetics of this book are concerned Um, but I don't think that's the one I'll read because that's a dramatic poem um, as two persons and it's a little bit lengthy Uh, but what I'll read instead is um, I think the next poem in the sequence of six which is called uh, To Look At Two Love and forgetting might have carried them a little further up the mountainside, with night so near, but not much further up. They must have halted soon, in any case, with thoughts of the path back, how rough it was, with rock and washout, and unsafe in darkness, when they were halted by a tumbled wall with barbed wire binding. They stood facing this, spending what onward impulse they still had, in one last look, the way they must not go, on up the failing path where, if a stone or earth slide moved at night, it moved itself. No footstep moved it. This is all, they sighed. Good night to woods. But not so. There was more. A doe from round a spruce stood looking at them, across the wall, as near the wall as they. She saw them in their field, they, her, and hers. The difficulty of seeing what stood still, like some upended boulder split in two, was in her clouded eyes. They saw no fear there. She seemed to think that too thus they were safe. Then, as if they were something that, though strange, she could not trouble her mind with too long, she sighed and passed unscared along the wall. This, then, is all. What more is there to ask? But no, not yet. A snort to bid them wait. A buck from round the spruce stood looking at them, across the wall, as near the wall as they. This was an antlered buck of lusty nostril, not the same doe come back into her place. He viewed them quizzically with jerks of head, as if to ask, Why don't you make some motion, or give some sign of life? Because you can't. I doubt if you're as living as you look. Thus, till he had them almost feeling dared to stretch a proffered hand, and a spell-breaking. Then he too passed unscared along the wall. Two had seen two, whichever side you spoke from. This must be all. It was all. Still they stood, a great wave from it going over them, 
as if the earth in one unlooked-for favor had made them certain earth returned their love. Beautiful. Yeah, and I'll read you one comment from the poem. This is on the first three lines. And again, you see the, the wave again shows up. Uh, it seems to run through most of Frost's poetry. Anyway, uh, Maurer comments on lines one through three. Only love which forgets what is possible and impossible, safe and unsafe, and expects miracles, expects an exception to the law of gravity. Only love could lead these two at dusk to a place so wild. Alone each would have not come, with night so near. Love is not afraid of death in the unknown. By definition, love is a gazing at the unknown. Mm. Yeah. It's like one comment better than most Frost essays. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for, uh, well, going down the rabbit hole of Sharon. Yeah, I haven't the, the recently been, been talking much about the Frost book. I've, it's good to get it out. It's, yeah. good, it's, it's it, good to revisit we it. Didn't, we didn't know it was going to go there when we talked to you. <laughs> we're, we're happy that it did, you know. It's, uh, um, and it's an important work. Yeah, I think so. It hasn't been picked up. The Robert Frost Society, they, they've been talking about it, but they haven't, I don't even think they've read it. Mm. Sluggards. <laughs> Where is it available? Uh, CooperandPosey.com. By direct. Yeah, give no, us... Uh, no distributors. Give us your link. You know, that's one of them. Give us your Irving Books link. We're going to... Yeah, so... Uh, plug your, plug your all, all the titles for now, there's no reason for us to pursue a distributor at this point as long as we can uh, fulfill orders. So cooperandposey.com, you can buy the Robert Frost book, the numbered, limited edition, numbered edition, as well as our latest title, Seven Palms, From a Kitchen Gardener at Munich and One to the Goddess at Waldrost. It's a nice long title. Anyway, uh, you can buy both of those. And then uh, for used and rare books, totally unrelated trade, <laughs> uh, as opposed to the new book publishing, the used and rare books Irving Book Company, Dot com. Excellent. Yes. Excellent. Anything uh, on the horizon? Yeah, the two two most eminent titles. For Cooper and Posey? Yeah, the Red House Mystery. Right, which we discussed. Yeah, yeah um, by A.A. A. Milne. He wrote it four, six years before the first Winnie the Pooh. Okay. Excellent book. Uh, it's a 100-year anniversary this year. So we're publishing the Red House Mystery, and that will inaugurate our mystery library. Um. And then the Dobbs opinion, uh, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Clinic, which is the opinion that overturned, as they say, Roe v. Wade. We're going to have an edition of that as well. So both of those, as well as the trade issue, the Frost book, that's the catalog as it, as it looks to us in 2023. Very exciting. Yeah. I think we'll be interested to see that, the Dobbs decision uh, in print. Yeah, goodness. Which I, I suspect... Uh, will do well for you. We'll see. It's ex- very existence is offensive to, to most people. Uh, yeah, so. well, uh, it's going to be a, it's a firebrand. Yeah, that's but, a, that's but a fire we want, I will say this uh, before we close, that we wanted it. I have no interest in, um, in, a, in a prejudiced publication. I think the opinion... Uh, it's relevant to everyone. Well, it's relevant to everyone. The, the legal writing is also excellent legal writing. Um, if only we were a society that could view things that way. That's right. that's how I'm viewing it. I'm thinking this is just a piece of art. Right. And it's, well, what's even worse about this is it's uh, Penguin Random House has already put up 
their version of it called We Dissent, where they put the dissenting opinions first. They like reorganize it and it's publish. It's political inherently. It's completely political. We have no interest in... But, but that's not... Now, I can say that theoretically, but practically it doesn't matter because publishing it is construed by many people as, a, as some kind of like neocon... Uh, enterprise, and of, of course it's not. I I we probably call that dislike conservative ink around here, bro. Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, I probably hate neoconservatives more than most liberals. Same. I'm, uh, I'm more of a mo- I'm more of a monarchist. Yeah, people myself. call me. You know, people call you a Republican. You're like, you have no idea what I'm not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's true. So a pure text of the yeah. gods, and a beautiful. But in a way, you know, just. To, last thought on that is that in a way to just pr- produce the pure text yeah i just it's the care. most political thing you can do <laughs> yeah yeah and I it's know. the most uh dissenting thing you can do which is hilarious yeah you know? non-editorialized just presenting the facts what the hell does a book and we dissent even say Oh, it's just you're just it's going just into signaling it. for sales. It's a signaling well. complex. Yeah. It's it's a it's an ugly book too. You should shilling. see the cover. Of course, it is. It couldn't be any other way. <laughs> couldn't be fucking penguin random. <laughs> well, <laughs> on that, <laughs> on that note, a great clo- closing note. Taylor Posey of Cooper and Posey Publishers. Correct. Yes. Thanks for coming on yes. American Sublime. Thank yeah, you very thank much. You.